Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 17. Um, Before last week, I was going to do 17 only today, but we're actually going to do 17 and 18 today. We're, we're, We're moving along quite quickly to bring our study in Revelation to a close. This week we'll be in 17 and 18. Next week, we're going to hit a brief pause and we're going to do Psalm 100 as we get ready to celebrate Thanksgiving together. Nice breath of a psalm of praise. The week after that, Pastor Tom is going to be leading us through Revelation 19 and then the Christmas season is here. And so we're going to be in a, in a study on uh, the names of God from Isaiah. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. And then we will finish the book of Revelation in the first couple weeks of January together before we head into um, all the other things that God has for us in this next year. But it's been an incredible study to be reminded that as God is giving this vision to John, he is telling him what's going to happen. You know, the, the book is broken up into three sections. The things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which are yet to come. And for quite some time here, we've been in the section that has to deal with the things which are to come. And so these things are prophetically in the future. But it's interesting because sometimes there's like concrete language. There's a word that we're going to look at today that is concrete language that says that this is completed and yet it has a future ending. And I just think about sometimes the people to whom John is writing this letter. He's writing it to church churches in Asia Minor, we know from chapters two and three. And he's writing them this this letter of prophetic encouragement because they're being persecuted. They're being um, pushed out and marginalized from society. They have a overlord by the name of Rome, whose king is Caesar, who says that he is God and God is not God. And they're, they're living in a time where it's really difficult to be a Christian. And yet he calls them to stand firm. He calls them to remain faithful. He calls them to have an understanding of God's truth because God is with them. And oh yes, he wants them to know, as Ron said, you know how the story ends. In fact, we'll read it today. The lamb has overcome. The lamb has overcome and because the lamb has overcome, his people have overcome. And so there's the big broad overview of Revelation, but I want to study today um, two chapters that come, uh, and, and we've been studying through the, the judgments of God. So, so we, we had like the seal judgments, we had the bowl judgments, and then last week, sorry, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and last week we had the bowl judgments. Those are the, the big markers of God's work in the tribulation period. Um, but then the story here in Revelation is punctuated with more details about certain things. And we're going to get details about someone named Babylon the Great. And we're going to get more details about a person named the Scarlet Beast today. So it's going to get, it's going to get fun in just a couple minutes here. But as is our custom, uh, I'll invite you to stand with me if you are able to. This is a longer reading. If you need to remain seated, that is absolutely fine. Uh, but if you're able to, I invite you to stand with me as we read together the scriptures. Here are the words of God. 
Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who have the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead, verse 5 says, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Then I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses or the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you want wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and 10 horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life, from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction." And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. When they, but when they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them. Because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called, the elect, and the faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and crowds and nations and tongues and the 10 horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and they will lay waste to her and make her naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God gave it in their hearts to do his purpose, both by doing their own common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be finished. And the woman whom you saw is the great city, which has a kingdom over the kings of the earth. Revelation 18. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean bird and a prison of every unclean and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the power of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of 
of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she paid and give her back double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow for, and will never see mourning. For this reason, verse 8, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived sensuously with her will cry and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has Come. And the merchants of the earth cry and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from precious wood and bronze and iron and marble, cinnamon, ammonium and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargo of horses and carriages and human beings and human lives. And the fruit you long for has gone from you and all things things that were splendid and shining have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, crying and mourning, saying, woe, woe, the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste and every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning saying, what is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, crying and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who have ships at sea become rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel picked up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. The sound of the harpists, the musicians, the flute players, the trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. No craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer for your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth this is the word of the lord our father and our king i pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to set upon your truth that we might learn in order to live to your honor and to your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. And together we say, amen. Please be seated.
Thanks for standing. Every time I read this, I get another, oh man, that's so interesting. Oh, I hadn't seen that before. And even reading that, I'm gonna gonna pace myself and stick mostly to my notes uh, as we walk through this. But we read through this and we heard so many repetitive words. Whoa, whoa, whoa is the great city. We heard a phrase used, the great harlot, the, the one who commits sexual immorality, the one who other people commit sexual immorality with her. We have this image of a beast on whom this woman sits. All these amazing images. And here's the thing. Um, When we come to trying to understand these images, the first thing we need to do is say, what does the context tell us about the image we're seeing? So when we look at this woman, we're given a lot of descriptors and we're going to do our best um, to, to determine what is going on here from the context clues that are actually within the passage. That's why it's good to read chapters of the Bible and not just a verse here and a verse here. That has its place. But when you read a whole, you begin to go, oh, hey, 15 verses earlier, they were talking about this and now this has been answered. So we have a degree of clarity to it. All that said, as we enter this, it's also important to say that as we engage these symbols, There are good scholars who wrestle through these symbols and say, we think this is this, and they're trying to put stuff together. And so we're going to go cautiously but bravely into the world of biblical prophecy today. Are you with me? Good. Pray for me. Here we go. Uh, We're going to be looking at this person called the woman. Uh, She's given a more descriptive name. She's given the name the harlot in my translation. Yours might say the prostitute. There's a reason why she's given this name. And it's because she's engaging in a whole bunch of intimate things with a whole bunch of different people. She has, as her core, a a godlessness to her. And not just even a godlessness, a, a pattern that says, I'm going to go ahead and take the godless way that I'm living and I'm going to try to infect as many people as I can with the same godless way of living. Which is why she's called, for example, in verse uh, five, Babylon the great, the name given to her, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. In other words, she describes a very powerful figure, something that this is a religious type of figure, not, not a spiritual, not like a, not like a religious figure and that they have a relationship with Jesus, but, but a veneer of religion with a whole bunch of power attached to it um, in here. But let's look at a couple things that have to do with the great harlot. It's helpful to, for me to just think about this in the various verses. In verse two, we find out that the, that the great harlot commits sexual immorality with kings of the earth. All right, kings of the earth or kingdoms of the earth. Um, Verse three, we find out that she is seated on the beast clothed in purple. Purple is typically a a color that denotes um, majesty or royalty. I find it interesting that she is seated on the beast. And actually later we read um, that the beast carries her. So there is an intimate relationship between the power of the beast and the woman that sits on the beast. All right. They're not the same, but they are related in some way in relationship during this time. Um, she carries a cup full of moral corruption, verse 4 says. In verse 5, she is called Babylon the Great. We'll look at that in just a minute. The mother of harlots, the abominations, and the word abomination here means things that are revolting or things that are detestable. So you can think of any kind of immorality in your mind she embodies it all. Her passion, her heart, 
This, this, this powerful force of people on the earth is driven to be about revolting and detestable things during a time in which there's a lot of revolting and detestable things on the earth. One of the things that, that is plucked out for us in the context here also is in verse six, she is drunk with the blood of martyred saints. The word um, martyr here is the same word as the word witness in verse six. She drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs or the witnesses of Jesus. And so she is someone who persecutes genuine believers who have a faith in Jesus in the world at this time. She's called the great city in verse 18. There's some kind of, um, there's some descriptions that cause us to go, all right, John, what are you talking about here? What, what, what's in view in your mind as you're giving these clues? Um, I think there's one I didn't put up there. Um, she sits on top of the beast and sits on top of seven hills, which is another kind of important one that we'll look at later. But as we come to her, this is who she is. This is the description. She is anti-God in every possible way. And the question is, is when it talks about Babylon the Great, one of the questions we can ask is, is this a literal Babylon, as some scholars think, or is this Babylon word a descriptor for another type of rule or type of kingdom? Uh, in the ancient period, um, in Jewish literature, Babylon was one of the ciphers that was used to describe the city of Rome. You have to remember, at the time in which John is writing this, he's writing to a people who are under the hand of Rome. I think when they see this, they are seeing there's a Roman oppression that is being described here. And there's another clue to that that we'll look at in a couple minutes. But this idea of Babylon the Great, whether it's literal or whether it's a cipher for Rome, has a long and storied history to it. In fact, Babylon first occurs back in the book of, anybody know? Genesis. I love it. Thank you for whomever said Genesis. Just a little clue. If we ever say it begins back where, it's probably Genesis because most things begin some way, somehow in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 11, we're introduced to a place called Babel. Babel. It's the same word, uh, Greek and Hebrew are two different languages, but it's the same place. On the plain of Shinar, this place called Babel or Babylon. Now it's interesting. When we come to learn about Babel in Genesis chapter 11, it's not a terribly great context in which to, um, like, like you go, oh man, that's not very good. That's really what you end up saying. Babel was founded by a mighty warrior by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod's dad was a guy by the name of Cush. Cush's dad is a guy by the name of Ham. Ham's dad is a guy by the name of Noah. All right, so this is a couple generations removed from the flood that covered the earth in which God destroyed almost every living thing on the earth except for what was in the ark. And it's one of Noah's sons, and if you follow the story, it's one of Noah's sons who did something kind of detestable that eventually leads to giving birth, or the detestable act doesn't lead to this, but Ham is, doesn't have a good cred in the story of Noah. Um, 
But he gives birth with his wife to Cush and then to Nimrod, and this place called Babel arises, this place called Babylon. And the reason I want to take you here is because I want you to see, when we see Babylon, it's always in opposition to God in the text. Um, Genesis chapter 11, it says this, at, at one time, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt and mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What I want you to notice is what I put in yellow for you. Let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. At the core of who Babylon is, Babylon in the scriptures is a place that seeks to make a name for itself no matter what king is in charge. And we can actually fast forward to the story that Ron referenced. This was not planned to the story that Ron referenced in Daniel chapter 40, because it says in Daniel 40, at the end, or four verses 29 through 30, at the end of 12 months, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, all right, I, I got to stop for just a minute, because what happened before this is that Daniel had received, well, Nebuchadnezzar received a vision. Daniel was telling him what this vision was. And a year before this happens, a year before he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, God tells him, don't think of yourself as high and mighty. Don't think that your hands have done this. In fact, God used Nebuchadnezzar to bring judgment to his wayward people. That's what happened. God was sovereign even in the Babylonian exile. But notice how a year later, and God gave him warnings. If you do this, there will be judgment on you. Notice what he says a year later after having that warning by God. It says, the king exclaimed, is this not Babylon the great that I have built by my vast power to be a royal residence to display my majestic glory? When we look at Babylon we have to see it comprises a system, a religious system, an economic system, a, a powerful force on the earth during the time of the tribulation that is all about its own vast power and it's all about its majestic glory. And when we look at that, frankly, I can see myself to some extent, not who I am in Christ, but I can see how my story sometimes is, wait, I want this for my own power. Wait, I want this for my own glory. This temptation, this, this drive actually begins before Genesis chapter 11 with Babel. It goes all the way back to the very garden where Satan comes and he tempts Eve and he says, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and he deceives her. He lies to her to tell her something that, that he wants her to believe will bring her life, but it won't bring her life. It only brings her death. Sin enters the picture. Brokenness enters the picture. And here we have, because of the mutiny of Adam and Eve, we are all a part of the story of people who have mutinied against God because we want to be people who build by our vast power. We want to be people who declare that this is for our majestic glory. And God says, I will not share my glory with another. So at the end of this time, he's singling out this particular um, religious or economic influence through some type of kingdom, I believe it is. But the spirit of Babylon is pride and self-preservation and self-glory. 
pride, preservation, and self-glory. Ancient Babylon in the time of Nebuchadnezzar was the political and religious capital of the world. It was renowned for its luxury, but it was also renowned for its moral corruption. Because whenever you have a system that says, this is going to be for my vast power and my majestic glory, what inevitably follows that is corruption. Always. Always. I believe that this is, um, or I should say, in the same way, Babylon at the great, at the end of the age, will be a, a kingdom comprised of a spirit of narcissism, power, and a veneer of religion, but no life in Christ because it's all about themselves. Now, I think Babylon the Great is most likely a reference to a kingdom stemming from the empire of Rome that will be intertwined with and, and will advance a religious system of prostitution in the end days. It will be a leader in taking people away from God because it fosters, as one scholar says, an idolatrous spirit spirituality and bold independence from God. For a time, it has its power on the earth. But what's fascinating from what we read is there's a time in which it's very strong and it has a lot of influence. And then there's a whole bunch of things that begin to cave in on it. And it becomes overcome. In fact, verse 17 of Revelation 17 says, God gave it in their hearts to do his purpose, both by doing their own common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast. What is this purpose? This purpose is to lay waste to um, the, the, the beast and the ten horns, which are ten kingdoms. They lay waste to this prostitute, to this harlot, and they make her naked, and they eat her flesh, and they burn her up with fire. In other words, she receives judgment from the kingdoms of the world. In part, though, it is according to the righteous judgment of God. I said earlier um, that I think this is Rome. Here's one of the reasons I think this has a Roman background to it. And to do this, we have to look at the scarlet beast. The, the, the images that we get from the beast are a couple here. Uh, verse three tells us that there are seven heads and 10 horns. It, it says that there's blasphemous names, which assumes a measure of divinity. The beast thinks that he is God. In fact, one of the amazing things that is stated here is in verse eight, and it happens again in another verse, it says that the beast was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss. If you know, and you remember back to Revelation chapter one, one of the descriptions given to God in Revelation one and other places in the text is that God is the one who was and who is and who is to come. This is a great imposter. He, he, he is the adversary. He is Satan. He is, he is the one who is totally opposed to God and wants to take everybody down with him. And he does everything he can to mirror and to mimic and to deceive people into thinking that he is God and God is not God. And so this name is given to them as a, as a just a, hey, here's what's behind this, this woman. What's behind this woman, the power that's behind her is one of a satanic beast, the adversary, the devil himself. Um, more information about this. Uh, it says in verse 11 that it's the nth empire, eighth empire of the earth and also part of the seventh. So he plays some part in, in a series of empires there. And verse 14 tells us that he wages war against the lamb. Here's one of the reasons I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it has a Roman background. Um, 
If you read Daniel chapter 7, we're introduced to many kingdoms. And one of the kingdoms that we looked at from beasts there was a kingdom that comes in the end of the age, and it seems to have Roman roots. We're given a couple of the kingdoms, and you can go back to that study in Daniel 7 and trace that through. But we're given an amazing little clue here. It says that there's seven heads, and it says in context in verse 9 that these seven heads are seven hills. In the ancient period, Rome was known as a city that had seven hills. So you can see them here in this. There's seven hills on the right-hand side of your screen. I won't read all the names to you because they're hard. Uh, I tried this morning. Here's a a model of ancient Rome where there are seven hills. John, I think, is giving coded language to his hearers to say, yeah, this empire of Rome is going to continue. It's going to come all the way to the end where this Roman-ish empire is going to rear its ugly head. Whether that's out of Rome or whether that is, is located um, in the spirit of Rome, there is scholars who take both sides to this. But there is this picture of a Roman empire that is given here. And we're introduced to 10 horns, which are 10 kings or kingdoms, verse 12 tells us. And their purpose is to give authority to the beast in everything they do. So, so all the energy, all the power, all the... Um, All the muscle at the end of the age is being directed towards the kingdom of the beast. This beast, the false messiah, is one who has no concern for even the harlot because except what he can get from her is what he wants. The messiah... It's interesting, we find out in chapter 17, the, the harlot dies a death. There's a conquering of 10 kings, um, 10 kingdoms, plus this beast that conquer the harlot. And as they conquer this harlot, the Messiah does not step in to save her because she is not a part of his flock. Rather, he allows the horns, he allows the beast to do their purpose of destruction as it aligns with his. Um, in, ver- in chapter 18, we get this image of fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Um, but, but more than once, it says fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And a couple different groups are, are um, pulled out. Uh, the groups here are the kings of the earth, uh, which we find in verse 9, because they commit sexual immorality and live sensuously with the harlot. Another group that is pulled out here are the merchants of the earth. And so there seems to be an economic prosperity that comes. The kings are a a political prosperity or governing prosperity. The merchants of the earth are an economic prosperity. But then we even find that there's ship... Shipmasters, I think is the way it's phrased. Yeah, shipmaster in verse 17. Every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea, they all watch the demise of this harlot. They, they, they all watch as, the, as things begin to crumble. Um, the way that her demise is described in chapter 18 is, is this. Um, Got to find the right, right verse here. Um, there is judgment that comes. The fifth angel uh, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and darkens his kingdom. No, I want before that. There is, uh, don't you love it when you know it's there and you can't find it and it's right there? That's my life right now. Um, 
there's a demise <laughs> of the harlot. And then there's a demise of the beast. Come to Sunday school, I'll find it between here and there. Um, and there is a, a loss of economic prosperity that happens in these ensuing verses. And I just want to say, what is God doing in all this? What, what, what is God doing as we zoom in on this loss of economic prosperity, on this loss of power and authority in the earth? Verse 20, verse 20 tells us that he is judging the kingdom. It says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. One of the things we noticed with the harlot in chapter 17 that God points out to us is that she kills the true followers of Jesus. She, she, she upgrades the martyrdom. In the ancient period, Rome was known for this. And in fact, the Colosseum was built in Rome that they might have these type of gladiatorial games. It's actually built from the proceeds of ransacking the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. And it becomes known throughout that land that if you're a Christian, depending on which emperor is in power, it kind of gets worse and gets a little bit better. But as, as the empires go and they come and they go, there is not just the economic falling of people here. There's the actual killing of Christians. And it seems to me that part of this judgment that God brings on a world system is in part because the type of merchant and in um, buying and selling is, is wrong. I mean, verse 13 says that there is, it lists all these things, but notice at the end of it, there's a cargo of horses and carriages and of human beings and of human lives. There's a spirit within this kingdom of the beast that is willing to expound everything that they possibly can from people to suit their own end. And God comes to the end and he says, enough. But not just enough for that. He comes to the end and he says, and everybody's like, who became rich from her, they stand at a distance and they watch her demise because they don't want to be too close. As they come to the end of this great city, and as they come to the end of seeing everything just go down, whoa, whoa, verse 19 says, it's because, in part, in large part, because these people, this kingdom, this system, engaged in sinful actions that needed to be righteously judged, including the killing of the prophets including the killing of the people of God, including attempting to stand against everything that is near and dear to the heart of the Father. We come to the end, and I'm doing this quickly, in part because of time. And I want you to notice one more thing. As 18 comes, and there's just the woes and the destruction and the ending of these kingdoms, we come to the end of this, and verse 23 says this. It says, The light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. At, at the end of this, as I said a little bit earlier, or at, at the center of this, I should say, 
there is a, a, a heart direction of deception. The beast is all about deception. In fact, this word for deceived here in Revelation 18, where the nations are deceived by their sorcery, it's a word planao in Greek, and it means to cause, to go astray, to mislead, or to deceive. When we look at these chapters and we see a zoomed in picture of the woman, a zoomed in picture of the beast, and we zoomed in picture of these various kingdoms, as we go into that and we look at that, we have to be reminded at the center of them is a power, the power of the adversary, the power of Satan, who wants to cause deception to grow who wants to cause the people of that time and the people of this time, because he's a liar then and he's a liar now, to accept things that will never satisfy. I've read these and I, I read these chapters and I went, all right, Lord, how do we begin to apply what we see here prophetically um, for us today? And, and I came, came with this. We have to be people who remember who we are in Christ. We have to be people who amidst the deception of the world today, amidst the uh, maneuverings of empires and kingdoms and countries and businesses and traders, we have to know who we are. Because only in knowing who we are can we have feet to stand. We're going to, God willing, study Colossians next year uh, in the wintertime. What I love about many of Paul's writings is he spends so much time telling us, here's who you are, here's who you are, here's who you are. And then he tacks on a, oh, by the way, because of this, God wants to live his life through you so that you live out this. If you're a follower of Jesus here today, could I just read you some things about who you are? Scripture says that you're a new creation, that you're a child of God, that you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, that you're a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that you've been made holy, you've been made righteous, you've been made blameless, you've been forgiven of your sin. You're loved, you're accepted, you're adequate. In fact, Scripture says that you, are, you and I are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's who we are. That's who we are. We still struggle with sin because we struggle with flesh and we struggle with the temptation to desire to gratify our flesh. But that's who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. We have to know who we are. We also need to know what is true. Um, one of the great things, many of you have been reading through the Bible this year with us. Um, next week, we're going to, during Sunday school, we're going to do our journey through the Bible. We're moving it a little bit earlier into the day for, for a couple of reasons. But, but you've been reading through the Bible. One of the reasons reading God's word is so important for you and for me is because we have to know God's truth. Because the enemy is a great counterfeiter. In fact, the best counterfeits are just this far off of what is true. Remember who you are in Christ. Know what is true. The third thing I want to encourage us is to stand in the truth. To stand in the truth. I, I love the way that we sing sometimes uh, when we come to the end of the song in Christ alone. We say, here in the power of Christ, we stand. We have who we are in Christ. We have God's word and God's truth to give us direction for living. 
but we also have the power of God in which, in whom, actually, in whom we can stand. Jesus says of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Are you weak and struggling today to believe? Choose to believe that God's word will not return void. Choose to believe God's word when he promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Choose to believe God's word when he says, in these words are life for you. Choose to believe God today. Choose to stand in the truth. And when you're weak and you're struggling to believe, continue to run to the Father. Because the adversary will lie to you. Your emotions will lie to you. Your desires will lie to you. But we're not a people whom God wants to live by lies. Because he has given us himself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Stand in Christ. Because no one comes to the Father except through him. What I'm saying is that for the people of God, we begin with a position of victory. We begin with a position of power because of Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus here today and you've been traveling with us through these, um, these uh, meanderings through the book of Revelation, and you're going, man, there's a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming. It says in 2 Peter that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. His promise of coming back and, and judging the world with righteousness. He wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. That may be you today. You read these words and you go, man, there's, there's a whole lot of economic system and world system and king system here that's going to go down. It's going to experience judgment. Yeah, there is. But you don't have to. You don't have to be part of that because God has paid the ultimate price, his own life. Jesus said that he came, that he came to bring salvation to the world through his death and his resurrection. And that when we believe in him, we can find life in his name. John, in the gospel of John, talks about that all the time. And that's our invitation to you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, <laughs> Our invitation is, okay, so now we have neighbors and we have family members and we have friends who are far from God. What does God desire from us? And we know what he desires. He says, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. We have a mission, we have a purpose to be about the kingdom of God here and now. While we read things that come yet in the future, we have a purpose to be about his kingdom right now. I want you to think about, just for a moment, I want you to think of three people in your life who don't know Jesus. I wanna ask you, commit to pray for them this week that they may come to saving faith. We're heading into a season of Thanksgiving and Christmas. What an amazing time to be people who share the truth of the light of the world. Think about three people in your life. Could be next door neighbor, could be a family member, could be a friend, could be a kid, could be a parent. That you commit to pray for every day 
from now until the end of Christmas. Now until the end of Christmas. Pray, pray every day that God would reveal himself to them and then just be ready to say, God, if you want me to step into that conversation in any way, I am here. Because we serve a risen Savior who brings life to dead things. You and me. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for your presence with us. As we think about, Lord, um, friends of ours and family members of ours who are far from you, we pray, God, that they would come to saving faith. We pray that they would find in you what their hearts desire, what their souls desire, life. Life to the full, in fact, you say in your word. As we look at these various kingdoms, God, just I thank you that we are not of that kingdom. We are of the kingdom of light. We're the kingdom of um, the sun. And God, we stand here today in your grace. We sit here today in your grace. Thank you for how you've been so good to us. So good to us, God. Thank you for your promise to never leave or to forsake us. Thank you for your promises of peace over our hearts and our minds. We come to you today, God, knowing that in you there is fullness of joy. Now, Father, as we prepare to, to go to the next things you have for us, help us to love people like you have loved us. Father, give us your love for this world in a way that we can't manufacture, in a way that we can't conjure up. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? Three people to pray that God would reveal himself to them and to be ready ourselves to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray again, just recognizing God, how good and how great you are. We stand in honor of the King of Kings. We stand for the glory of Christ in our life. You've said in your word that you can keep us from stumbling and that you present us before your throne. Thank you for walking with us this week. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for leading us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Because God, your name is what we want to be about this week. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Messiah, our Redeemer, and our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.